Today is a giant step forward for our health system. It was made possible by two adversaries asking what we have in common rather than what separates us. It happened because we rolled the dice that cooperation yields more than conflict. Federal Health Minister Mark Holland talking about this Pharmacare bill tabled in the House of Commons today as he alluded to a byproduct of the supply and confidence agreement between the Liberals and the NDP. So the goal is here national universal Pharmacare. That's what the minister says. So this isn't the end of it. But uh, this is a beginning stage that is going to take quite some time to actually implement. So there's going to be no money for this in the upcoming federal budget. The minister says because this still needs to pass through parliament. They still need to strike deals with the provinces. So we'd be looking at next year's budget at the earliest. So in terms of anybody actually being able to take advantage of this program, who knows when that's going to happen. And so the idea of this going beyond... Uh, diabetes medication and birth control, uh, that's a long way down the road. And we'll certainly uh, be having an election uh, long before we ever get to that point. So maybe there's some political uncertainty about uh, the future of pharmacare. But nonetheless, uh, the bill has been tabled. So the process now begins to make this law and to try to implement some kind of national pharmacare. The idea of a single-payer system for pharmaceutical drugs, for prescription drugs, that mirrors how our healthcare system works. So what could this look like? What are the challenges here? Well, joining us uh, for some further analysis, someone who's been following all of this very closely, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Rosalie Wanch, Senior Policy Analyst and Lead of the Health Policy Research Program at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org. Rosalie, thank you so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, you know, it's a long time coming, and I guess it's a big day to get the news. I mean, I suppose it is somewhat historic in a sense. Like, what's your sense of, you know, just on, on the grand scale of things, how this ranks? Um, well, given that Canada is really the only developed country with a universal insurance system for hospitals and physici physician services, but not for prescription drugs, I'd say this has been on the to-do list basically since we implemented a universal pharmacare system. Getting there's a big challenge, obviously, and a lot of this is going to depend on, on the details. So now that you've been able to have a glance at, at the legislation, does anything jump out? I mean, did anything surprise you, first of all? Um, I think what was most surprising is how much it mirrored the way the government used to talk about pharmacare, say, before the all of the leaks and, and news we were getting about it in the last couple of weeks. The legislation lays out a framework that um, really is less, I guess, less controversial or different than it the leaks might have implied, mm -hmm. um, and that it really sets out, I think, what could be a reasonable framework, but it does show that there's, it's going to take quite a lot of time, and it does depend on the provinces agreeing, and so there are quite a few hurdles for the federal government to get over before we can actually say we've achieved this goal. I mean, I guess the legislation can lay out the framework, but, you know, as we saw with the child care negotiations, I mean, if the federal government has some expectations and wants to dangle some money, you know, to the provinces to agree to that, we don't necessarily need legislation to make that happen. What's your sense of maybe why it needs to be done this way? I mean, I think that's a good question. I think it, particularly, it's, there's the political aspects where they had made a deal and committed to legislation, so now they've written some. Yeah. Um, but there's, other than that, 
I think it's really just to scope out the intent. Um, and also the legislation does have some language about a sustained funding commitment. Um, so maybe there's, there's some, that gives some legal certainty for provinces that the deal, if they do make a deal with the federal government, that they aren't going to find themselves actually shouldering more of the costs mm-hmm. further down the road. Right, because we, we call this National Pharmacare, but I mean, it, it is essentially going to be a, a bunch of separate provincial pharmacare systems, presumably operating under some similar principles, but the federal government wouldn't be running this per se, would they? No, no, they wouldn't. It really, uh, it looks like they are planning to make agreements with provinces and have provinces then actually provide the coverage. This makes sense since provinces already have drug insurance programs and, um, you know, adapting the existing programs is likely to be a better and less costly idea than creating an entire new program and administration at the federal level and, and then the resulting disruption in the public and private insurance markets. Well, then that's a big question. I think people are already asking, like, what's going to happen to to the coverage I already have? Uh, that that sort of thing. And so I do wonder. I mean, you know, Alberta and Quebec are hinting that they may opt out, but if the federal government wants to give them money to fill some of those gaps, they're they're willing to do that. Does do do we still get to to something we can call pharmacare if it's done that way? Um, well, I would say that there is at least some pharmacare coverage across the country already. It varies by provinces as to who's covered and, and what the costs associated with it might be, but really somewhere between 5 and 20-ish percent of people, um, depending on who, the, who made the estimates, do have a need. And so mm-hmm. I think that even if we couldn't say that this is truly a national program, um, since quite automatically two provinces aren't likely to be included, that making improvements in other provinces is still a good thing to do. So I'd say this is also a case where you don't want to let perfect be the enemy of the good mm-hmm. and taking the first steps in the direction of improving coverage and working with the provinces that are aligned with that goal can start the momentum towards what I think the government hopes will eventually be a national program. Um, Given that Quebec has had coverage since the 90s, however, and a first payer system doesn't isn't compatible with their current insurance system, it's unlikely that Quebec would ever be part of the national healthcare system. But Quebec already has a quite unique healthcare system and does things a little bit differently than everywhere else already. All right. What do we know about those Canadians who do fall through the cracks or those who struggle to cover the cost of their medications? And, and what would seem to be the most effective way of helping them? Well, I think that there's, there's sort of two things to think about. There's the current unmet need, um, and then there's also maybe who is getting, currently getting access to diabetes, drugs, and contraception and whatnot, but purely through the private insurance market or, you know, through their own costs. I think the people that are, don't have insurance and are low-income Um, women or visible minority groups, indigenous peoples, there are certain groups that are much more likely to have a pharmacare need. Mm -hmm. And so the government can really take a couple of different strategies to try and address that. But I think that really the most effective one is to target your 
program or solution to those that currently don't have coverage, um, as opposed to maybe creating new coverage for those that aren't lacking. Well, it, it sounds like we're going to do that. I mean, so I, I, I would imagine maybe that comes with a higher price tag if we take a more universal approach. But do we have any idea of, of what this might cost? Well, the federal government seems to think that it'll cost about $1.5 billion. But I can to say start. that public... Yeah. yeah, to start. and But I can say that currently, or at least actually 2021, um, public and private insurance spending on diabetes drugs that doesn't cover the whole population was about $3.3 billion with an additional $500 million coming out of Canadians' pockets. So it's quite clear that the, the federal government expects that the provinces will still shoulder some of this cost, um, but it's unclear how much, really, if it becomes first-dollar spending, we are effectively shifting all of the private insurance spending onto public budgets. And in so terms those of that yeah, actually no, have expensive good health yeah. insurance could potentially see their coverage change um, or simply if their coverage remains the same it's now being paid for by taxpayer dollars instead of by the employer premiums and the insurance company I mean if the goal is to get to a point where all drugs are covered maybe the order in which we get there becomes a little bit moot but the government's made a decision to start in these two areas, birth control and diabetes medication. Was that somewhat of an arbitrary decision? I mean, do, or does it make sense at some level that we would start here? What, what did you make of that? Well, I'm not a medical professional, so I <laughs> certainly shouldn't be the person that picks what is the best thing to cover. Um, but I also feel that politicians are generally in a similar category of maybe not knowing what is the biggest need mm -hmm. for Canadians or what would have the largest impact for the broadest number of people with the least amount of spending. Um, so it does appear to be slightly arbitrary. Um, I have my guesses as to what, what might have led to those decisions, but ultimately they picked two specific categories, and what that does is it means that those the people that happen to have diabetes or currently lack access to contraceptives are the ones that will benefit. Um, but there's really going to be minimal impact for anyone else until we can go through this whole process of developing a bigger formulary. Well, very long way still to go on all of this. We'll see how it plays out much more at cdhow.org. Rosalie, appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Anytime. All the best. Take care. Uh, Rosalie Wanch is a senior policy analyst, lead of the health policy research program of the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org. So kind of an overview of what's here, the direction the government intends to go, maybe why overall this, this issue should be a priority. But the question, of, is this the right way to go about it? Do we disrupt the people that already have coverage? is a way of creating something that's fair and quote-unquote fair and universal? Or should we just be focusing on those who are falling through the cracks? It would be a lot easier for the government to do that. Uh, to say the provinces, look, you got too many people in your province who aren't covered when it comes to whatever, diabetes or whatever. So here's some money. We want you to figure out how, how to cover them. I, I think you'd get a lot more cooperation on that. Bad actors target our most vulnerable our children. They spread vile hate and encourage impressionable people to commit violence. We know the harms we experience online can have real-world impacts with tragic, sometimes fatal, consequences.
So it's Justice Minister Arif Varani this week announcing Bill C-63, the Liberal government's new online harms legislation. And while this bill doesn't go as far as maybe some had feared, or even as far as the government had previously suggested it might, it is a, a wide-reaching and far-reaching bill. And no doubt there is a, a lot of awful stuff out there on the Internet, some of which already is illegal. This is meant to give some additional tools, I guess, to force Internet platforms to take down or otherwise make inaccessible some of that content. And when it comes to things like child pornography, that kind of stuff, revenge porn, who would disagree? But as I say, this is far-reaching legislation. A lot of this has to do with hate and hate speech and how we police that. Now, there are laws in the criminal code that deal with hate speech. There will be another one created by this. Uh, and there's also going to be an opportunity then for individuals to take such matters before the Canadian Human Rights Commission. And this harkens back to a, a time when we had a section that dealt with uh, online hate that fell under the commission's purview, the former Section 13. So what are the free speech implications of all of this? What are the constitutional implications of all of this? Well, our next guest and their organization uh, definitely has some concerns. Uh, Josh DeHaas is a counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation, more the ccf.ca. Josh Kadevi with us here. Welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Uh, so is it fair to say that this bill doesn't go as far as, as maybe we'd initially been been sort of conditioned to expect well in in one uh fairly important way it doesn't go quite as far and that's because the previous iteration of the bill would have required social media companies to take down all kinds of harmful content or quote-unquote harmful content uh within 24 hours and that would have been a very very problematic because you know when a social media company is being told they'll be liable if they don't immediately take down uh, speech that is considered hateful, for example, uh, that's going to lead to uh, them always erring on the side of taking down all kinds of speech. And we saw that happen in Germany. And uh, so that's a big concern that's not in this bill in the sense that the only 24-hour takedown requirement, it relates to uh, child exploitation images. And that's uh, something I think everybody can agree. We want to get off the internet as quickly as possible. Um, but there are certainly some other, uh, much much of what the, was really bad about this bill remains in this bill, and that includes things like the uh, Canadian Human Rights Commission uh, process, where people will now be able to go to the Canadian Human Rights Commission and complain that somebody committed uh, discriminatory speech against them online, and they can potentially be hauled through this process where they might face a big fine or... Uh, be required to pay compensation for speech that is uh, discriminatory, according to the the commission. Right, and let, let's d dig into that a little bit deeper because we we did have that previously. Um, the the government insists this time that we are still going to use the criminal code definition of hate, but obviously these matters that come before these commissions, it's it's not the same as you know prosecuting and proving a criminal charge in court. So, what are the concerns about opening this door? Yeah, that's a really important point. So, when the the current hate speech laws. Um, they require the attorney general's consent just to have a hate speech charged. And then a judge will take a look at whether hate speech has been committed. 
And it has to be proved by the Crown beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very high threshold. And, you know, we don't see a lot of prosecutions for criminal hate speech because of such a high threshold and those safeguards built in. In this case, uh, you'll be able to go to the commission. That would be on a civil standard. So the commissioner or the the, the tribunal members would be looking at whether or not um, the standard has been met on a balance of probabilities. And instead of it being the attorney general um, and the crown deciding whether to go forward, it could be anyone, you know, any individual or group that feels that they've been offended uh, by a speech online and that in their view it it rises to the level of hate speech, they can take you to the tribunal. They can threaten to take you there. You know, if they do take you there, you have to defend yourself, potentially hire a lawyer. You know, your reputation is going to be impacted by that, even if at the end of the day the tribunal doesn't um, find that you committed this discriminatory speech. But it will be easier for them to find that because the standard is just this balance of probabilities. So how subjective still, then, is this this notion of hate speech? I mean, this is always the problem with hate speech. Hate speech is extremely subjective. So, you know, the Supreme Court has looked at this question over and over again of what speech is, uh, you know, controversial but still protected and what rises to a level that, in their view, it can be limited without violating your constitutional rights where we can, you know, put you in jail or fine you for your speech. And what the Supreme Court has come up with is uh, they say the most extreme manifestations of the emotion captured by the words detestation and vilification are hate speech. But they also say, you know, speech that's repugnant or offensive, um, speech that merely ridicules, that's somehow not hate speech. And so you are left with thinking, well, you know, speech that ridicules is not hate speech, but speech that vilifies is. And for most people, those are almost synonyms, right? So it's really hard to know where the line is. And uh, that's that's the problem here, because it's sort of in the eye of the beholder, right? Like, a lot of people will um, say, you know, this term is, is offensive and it's hateful. And then to another person, it's not hateful or offensive at all, right? So... There's subjectivity is, is sort of the really big problem here when you start policing speech. Well, how much of that traces back to these sections of the criminal code? And we'll, we'll talk about the new crime that this creates, but sections 318 and 319 have been there for, for many years, uh, advocating genocide, public incitement of hatred, willful promotion of hatred. Is it that do the laws strike a right balance and it's kind of we're, we're down a different slippery slope here? Does part of the problem trace back to those laws themselves? Um, I mean, part of the problem is is just that, uh, you know, when you when you are going to police speech, whether it's through uh, making it a hate crime or some sort of tribunal, um, you have to have some sort of definition of, of what counts as as hate speech. Right. And so. Right. Um, that's that's the problem is you always have to have some sort of definition and you know a lot of free speech absolutists I'm I'm closer to that camp say we shouldn't put people in jail for their words mm-hmm. no matter how bad those are unless you are maybe you know inciting some immediate sort of uh, violence against another person um, but yeah it always comes down to the definition it's just so hard to come up with one that um, doesn't chill a huge amount of speech because you know, when people aren't sure whether their controversial speech is going to be considered hateful or not, they sort of clam up and don't want to talk about controversial issues, whether it's, you know, race or gender or whatever, 
um, whatever the topic, sensitive topic of the day might be. So this this also creates then a, a new hate crime. Yeah. So this was sort of a surprise. Um, They're calling this a standalone hate crime provision, and it's um, it's a bit of a job chopper actually because it applies to any act and. Um, Basically, if you are committing some other crime, like, for example, you committed an assault at present, the judge at the sentencing can give you like a stiffer sentence if that assault was hate motivated, according to according to the judge. Um, But this provision will allow police to actually charge people with um, a hate crime, you know, in addition to any other crime uh, right at the front end. And it seems to be meant to sort of encourage more charging of um, hate crimes whenever there's sort of some allegation of hate involved in, in some other crime. And what makes it a jaw dropper, in my opinion, is not only that it applies to every other act, but also it comes with a up to life imprisonment. And, you know, even if you're not going to see a lot of people put in prison for life for this, it is um, quite scary to think that uh, that uh, you could go to jail just for for life, just for words that are you know, hateful or, or deeply offensive. Right. And that would be the advocating genocide as a new maximum sentence. Oh, that's in addition. So that's, oh, that's actually, okay. yeah. So advocating genocide has been in the code for, for a long time. And it had a, I believe it was a five year maximum sentence. And now that's been increased to life. And then there are the other hate speech provisions, right. uh, the public incitement and the, um, willful promotion, and those have increased from two years to five years maximum sentence, which is a little odd because this other hate crime, crime provision says life. Um, but uh, there you go. That's, that's what they decided to do. Well, a couple of questions arise. And you mentioned, you know, cases that have gone to the Supreme Court around hate speech. I, I do wonder if, if you imagine there's some sort of a potential challenge here. And, and also further to that, I mean, Josh, is this a, a bill that could be amended to address these issues or does it kind of, you know, corrupt the whole exercise? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you will certainly see challenges to um, this sec- bringing back Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act um, in individual cases. Now, the Supreme Court has already said that something similar to this was constitutional, um, but you'll, you'll see some challenges. And there are lots of other things in this bill that impact on speech that I won't get into, and you'll surely see some challenges, unless, of course, they take, uh, take these parts of the bill out. Um, and certainly we hope that that happens. We'll see where this all goes from here. Much more at theccf.ca. Josh, appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here. Thank you. That's uh, Josh DeHaas. He's a counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. So they've identified some concerns. It was also the Canadian Civil Liberties Association today putting out a press release. They've got some concerns. So I do think this is a part of a bill that, that hopefully will be addressed. I think, as Josh said earlier, there's some aspects of this that maybe are reasonable, that, that everybody can agree on. But did it need to go this far in these other areas? Renewables have a place in our energy mix, but the fact remains that they are intermittent and unreliable. They are not the silver bullet for Alberta's electricity needs. And they are not the silver bullet of electricity affordability because each new development risks driving up the transmission costs and makes Alberta's utility bills even more expensive. 
So the Supreme Court yesterday announcing the end of the moratorium on approving new renewable projects and the new rules that the industry are going to have to operate under moving forward. But it's those kinds of comments that make people wonder whether this is a premier that takes a dim view of, of renewable or alternative energy uh, and whether this is uh, maybe a government that's attempting to knock the industry down a peg as opposed to just kind of having uh, any kind of a level playing field. And I think people have pointed to some of the double standards as it applies to oil and gas development on private land versus now these new rules that make it clear that on class one or class two agricultural land, new renewable projects will not be allowed. There are going to be some other limitations on where and how these kinds of projects can be built. Um, but I suppose, if, if nothing else, the fact that the moratorium is now lifted is a positive. And there was kind of a sudden halt to, to a lot of what had been happening in Alberta. We've seen a tremendous amount of investment in Alberta in renewable energy in recent years. And ultimately, that's a good thing. Right? The more capacity we can add, the better. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, this government's approach, where we're at now moving forward here, very pleased to welcome the program, Evan Wilson, Vice President of Policy for Western Canada National Affairs with the Canadian Renewable Energy Association. Evan, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. We got that there? I think we got it. Evan, uh, can you hear us now? I can hear you now. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. So not sure what happened okay. there, but good that we got you on the line. Appreciate it. Make some time for us here today. Uh, so let's just Excellent. make it your, your initial impressions, I guess, of kind of where we're at. The moratorium's lifted. We can get back to business. But what, what yesterday's announcement symbolizes? Yeah, so so it's it's we're pleased to see that the moratorium is going to lift tomorrow. The Alberta Utilities Commission will get back to uh, the task of approving projects that, um, you know, that have not been able to move forward for, or have not been able to be approved rather in the last seven months, um, but a lot of questions still remain um, for what you know what kind of regulatory system uh, they're going to get a, approved through, and and so you know uh, quite a lot of changes um, announced yesterday. I think the one where we have the biggest questions is around pristine viewscapes. Yeah. What is a pristine viewscape? Where is it going to be, and uh, what does that what does that mean in terms of some of the other changes? You know, uh, you had mentioned the agricultural land uh, policy, and one thing that's key there is, you know, you can still build and operate projects on class one and two if you can demonstrate that you can work uh, to continue agricultural land use. And the good news is, wind and solar can do that. So you know, we're keen to see. Um, you know, acceptability and the approval of, of projects on those lands moving forward. And then in terms of the requirements around, uh, you know, the, the requirements around reclamation security, the good news is our members have been paying reclamation security to uh, landowners and, and we're keen to get more transparency around that and really be able to tell that story. Right. But as you alluded to, I mean, some of what was announced, there's some details to be filled in here. How much uncertainty still hangs over all of this? Yeah, we've got, um, I mean, there still is uncertainty here. Like I said, uncertainty around um, the, the pristine viewscape, the what and the where uh, that is. I think some other things that people should keep their eyes out on are, you know, the, the, the reason that the moratorium happened was so that the AUC could have, have conversations about permitting and market reforms. We're still waiting for announcements about what market reform looks like. It's It's been because of Alberta's energy only market uh the deregulated market which has allowed wind uh, generators solar generators to to sign contracts with large power buyers that's what's driven 
um, you know, that's what's driven these projects. And, and we don't know what is going to happen in the market uh, reform conversation. We're expecting announcements on that soon. Um, but that is a question mark. Um, the, the announcement yesterday talked about reforms to the transmission system. You know, we, we are very keen to have conversations about what that will look like um, and ensure that, you know, any changes to, to the rules surrounding transmission still allow wind and solar to, uh, to, to generate here. So, you know, some, some pretty big questions still lie in front of us. Right. And, and I mean, what kind of conversations have occurred even this week? Or I mean, yesterday, have you had any conversation with the minister or government officials? Is, is, or is there at least the opportunity for that in the days ahead here? Yeah. You know, the, the conversations we've had, ongoing conversations with government. Um, we have, you know, we have been in touch with, with officials at the Alberta Utilities Commission. Um, you know, we, we have been very active in conversations and we really hope that what we are bringing forward about, you know, the benefits that renewables bring in terms of investment, the benefits that renewables bring in terms of meeting customer demand um, are being heard and that we can move forward with, with minimal changes to, um, you know, some of these, these items under discussion. A couple of things that the Premier talked about yesterday, I want to give you a chance to address. I mean, she talked about yeah. transmission because, you know, obviously all these new projects represent new capacity. Uh, that, that certainly can help alleviate uh, prices. But, you know, the transmission that's needed to get that capacity to market, how, how does that need to be dealt with? Yeah, I, I, I think that, um, you know, the way that, that this has typically been dealt with in our transmission system is the cost of the transmission system um, are typically allocated to or, or are allocated to customers. And the reason that that is, is because, you know, if you had a split between uh, uh, payment for the transmission system between customers and generators, well, the generators who are selling power are just going to price the cost of transmission into their service, right? Mm -hmm. you, you know, if a generator pays for transmission, well, then the customer is going to pay for transmission through the generator. Um, so, you know, we, we think that having, um, you know, a, a process that allows the clearest pricing signal to be sent for the transmission system um, is the best way to do it, and that would involve minimal reforms. One thing to keep in mind as well is, you know, given the amount of renewables that are coming online, we're expecting to see significant uh, downward pressure on the power price overall, which, you know, may have an effect of, of um, you know, offsetting any transmission costs that may be incurred. Well, if we reduce the power price by having uh, low-cost renewables on the system, you know, we might be able to find a, a pretty good balance of, right. of delivered costs. Right. And, and during those times where, you know, it, it, it is generating a lot of capacity, uh, you, know, where, you know, it means more... Uh, on the grid, it means lower prices. It even means Alberta's in a position to export, which is which is valuable. So the argument's been raised that what about those downtimes when it is dark or when it's not windy? And, and oftentimes that's in the winter. The premier talked about intermittency. She talked about reliability. How does that need to be considered? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's you know, that is, uh, you know, under active uh, consideration all of the time by the way our market works, you know. We do have a significant amount of natural gas generation on the system right now. Um, and, and we think that, you know, we've got more natural gas generation coming online over the next several months here. Um, and, and we think that's because the energy only market delivers incentives to natural gas to operate and, and to be built and to come online. 
Um, and it also sends signals to, to renewable generators to, to come to Alberta as well. And so we think that, you know, there is, you know, an opportunity to continue with the market um, as it currently uh, is, is uh, instituted, and, and we should see some of these benefits. The other thing is we're still waiting for clearer rules for the deployment of energy storage um, as mm-hmm. well. We think energy storage can play a role on this. And quite frankly, um, the rules around how to operate energy storage are, are not appropriate um, for, for what we're going to need here. I mean, you can use energy storage to delay transmission build-outs um, as a, from a technology perspective, but the policy doesn't allow you to do that. Um, currently, the, the costs to connect to the system for energy storage are quite prohibitive, and we think that if you, you know, reduce those costs, um, and if you, you allow uh, energy storage to serve as transmission uh, or as a substitute for transmission, we could really get some interesting projects on the go here. You mentioned Alberta system, the, the energy-only system, the market system, which I think has worked largely well. It's certainly, I think it's, it's spurred a lot of this investment, which has been beneficial to Alberta. But I wonder if that's almost another level of uncertainty over all of this, because, you know, we, we've heard musings that, you know, maybe the province is, is looking at changing our, our system. What, what can we say about that side of it? Yeah, so we we participated in a consultation that the Alberta Electric System operator held, um, talking to generators and talking to power uh, customers about, you know, should we be talking about more uh, reform to the electricity market? And there was a letter that was signed by generators and other participants in the market. I think it was about 18 different companies signed on to this and said, we are prepared to continue uh, making investments in the energy-only market. We don't think that needs to be changed. Um, and, and so we would, maybe there's some changes that can be made to um, support new services that would help with reliability. But we as a market are committed to this. The Alberta Utilities Commission, as part of the Module B inquiry, um, had a consultant do um, a survey of investors in generation, in uh, customers of electricity, in generators themselves, and really across the board, um, you had support for maintaining the energy-only market here. So, you know, there is a lot of broad support for the energy-only market across all sorts of participants, and we hope that's, that, that's recognized as we have, you know, more conversations about the future of the system. So moving forward here, Evan, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, the hope that we can get some clarity uh, around, uh, you know, some aspects of, of these new rules, I think that's going to be important. But do you think we'll get back to where it was before? I know there's the concern that maybe this moratorium or some of the rhetoric from government has put a, a bit of a chill on, on some of this investment. Uh, w- what's your sense on, on where things are at now moving forward? Yeah, I think that the government really needs to be sensitive to the the, the messages they're sending out to the, the the market in terms of, you know, how, how much uh, you know how many changes they're going to be making to to renewable uh, energy rules here. Again, there's considerable uncertainty in terms of viewscapes. There's considerable uncertainty in terms of markets. Um, and one thing to keep in mind is Alberta is competing with the U.S. for trillions of dollars of investment in greening the grid. Um, Also, if you look across the country, there are either procurements of of wind and solar and energy storage happening this year or in the next year for, uh, for electricity in pretty well every province across the country, including provinces that haven't procured renewable energy in, in 10 or 15 years. So, you know, Alberta's had a lot of success. And I think, you know, 
a big part of that is because of the resource, because of the policies that we've had, but also because there's not a lot of other provinces that have been competing for investment. And now Alberta is going to be competing. And I think that, you know, given the benefits that, that come from investment, the benefits to property tax in the rural communities, benefits to landowners in terms of lease payments, we really have to make sure we're sending the right signal in Alberta as we build uh, on the conclusions of these reports. We need to ensure that everybody knows Alberta continues to be open for business. Otherwise, there is a lot of competition and there's really a lot at stake here. Well, much more at renewablesassociation.ca. Evan, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate your input on this. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. All the best. Uh, that is Evan Wilson. He's the Vice President of Policy for Western Canada and National Affairs with the Canadian Renewable Energy Association. So some reaction from them to what was announced yesterday. I know there have been many stakeholders been watching all of this with great interest. And that includes uh, our next guest, the rural municipalities of Alberta. So I want to get some reaction to that. But uh, on the other side of the energy equation here in Alberta, uh, the RMA has released a new report looking at the amount of money that is owed in back taxes to municipalities by oil and gas companies. And that obviously has an impact on what municipalities are able to do. It affects their bottom line. So joining us to talk more about these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Paul McLaughlin, who is president of the Rural Municipalities of Alberta. Paul, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Appreciate it. I know you've been watching with great interest the debate around renewable energy and, and what the province may or may not do. Do you have any initial impressions or thoughts on, on what was announced here today? Well, I think there's you know there's a lot of missing uh, details as it relates to, to how each of those components work. But you know for the most part, uh, my organization and the folks that I represent really asked for three things. They, they wanted to have a conversation around agricultural land, really you know productivity, making sure that we're ensuring food security and those discussions around that were part of the discussion. The second piece was restoration reclamation. I mean, we live the dream uh, around, uh, uh, you know, orphan wells, uh, suspended and abandoned wells all throughout the province. So we want to make sure that the future uh, is taken care of as it relates to, to restoration reclamation. And then our final piece was to have some influence. So having municipal folks that are actually the, the best land use planners in a municipality are the folks that are represented by municipalities, but having a voice in the decision-making, which has been supported by what was announced uh, this morning. Yeah, that was uh, something the, the province made a point of noting that municipalities will have a say in that process. So that that's uh, something you were hoping to see. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we want influence. I think undeniably understanding that that uh, these are these are massive industrial projects, and uh, you know, covering kilometers in some cases. Um, very complex projects, but we want to definitely have the we have the lens of long term land use planning throughout Alberta, uh, especially in and agriculture is one of our key components too on how we actually make land use decisions. So definitely happy with the idea that um, we do have a voice. We'll have a voice that's entrenched, and uh, we can continue to having these projects move forward and create some certainty for the folks that I represent, as well as landowners and industry. Right, and I mean, you, you speak, of course, as mentioned, as the you know the Reeve of of Pinoca County, as well as you know representing this association of other municipalities. So you know, responsible energy development, when done right, can be a real benefit uh, to these municipalities. But that assumes then that these companies are, are are paying their taxes, and this speaks to the report that the RMA has put out today uh, that there's a, a significant and a growing back tax bill when it comes to oil and gas companies. Give us a sense of of how big this problem is. Well, for sure, Rob. First of all, this is the sixth year. I, I sure hope it would have ended. Uh, $251 million, a uh, little less than last year, uh, 40 
$2 million of new taxes, So, um, and 55% of those companies are still operating. This is after the government through municipal affairs allowed us to use a special lien, um, right. and also a minister order last year. So this continues to be a problem. Um, there's, you know, discretionary leniency by the AR. They have they have the tool in front of them. So we are not even asking for anything new, other than for them to use the tools in front of them, which is Directive 67 that requires the payment of taxes and surface leases to license and operate well in the province. Well, I'm curious then, because as you point out, and this was something the Alberta government announced in response to these concerns. So the uh, Municipal Government Act was amended, uh, giving municipalities secure status, as, as mentioned. So with these changes that were announced, why hasn't that made a difference? Because I think that the, especially the ministerial order was triggered when you're transferring assets. Um, it turns out that you can run an oil and gas company and not transfer any assets or drill new wells. Uh, continue to operate and not trigger any of the provisions that are there. By the mm. time we figure out a company is bankrupt to employ the special lien, that company's been stripped bare, and ultimately we're left holding the bag to the tune of a quarter million dollars. So we've written off half a billion dollars effectively unless the AER starts to move forward on this topic. So what can the AER do then? The AER can become a regulator and not a cheerleader. There's zombie companies that are wandering around on the landscape um, that their liabilities far exceed their assets. And what they do to get by is they don't pay surface leases or taxes. There's a part of the industry no one wants to talk about. Um, most most of the companies in the province, they all pay their bills. There's right. a small component. Everybody knows about them. And the AER just has to have this stop. They have to make sure that you pay taxes and surface leases in order to operate a well in the province of Alberta. So you're suggesting they're, they're choosing to turn a blind eye to this? I believe they are turning a blind eye because we provide them on a regular basis uh, the list of companies that aren't paying, and those companies are continuing uh, being con- continuing licensed and allowed to operate year over year. There's companies that have been not paying taxes for five years, and they're continuing to operate. So it is obvious that the AR is turning a blind eye to this topic. So the response would be, I mean, if they're not willing to pay, to at least not let them operate. Exactly. I think that if you did not pay royalties, uh, Rob, you are shut down immediately. Yeah. So royalties are held at a higher level than taxes, uh, although I do know royalties are different than taxes. Sure. The fact is, is that this is public interest, public good, and I think that's what the air needs to be held accountable for. So what's the impact on, on municipalities then? You know, I've got members that are over $10 million. In many cases, it can be up to a third of their assessment. We can't deficit budget. I don't have a money printing machine in Pinocchio County. No. So that money has to come out of reserves. That comes out of the pockets of all Albertans at the end of the day. Um, and as I said, you know, we'll be close to, if this continues, it'll be close to half a billion dollars written off. And when I say written off, that's just money. Those are bridges. Those are roads. Uh, those are people's jobs that get lost. Um, and I don't want to be exaggerate too much, but this, if this continues on the path it is, um, this is an existential crisis for municipalities. There's municipalities that will go bankrupt if this continues. Now, there are some companies that, as you say, are no longer operating. They're gone. They're bankrupt themselves. Uh, I guess at that point, you know, there, there are some cases where there's just no recouping that money. That's correct. Yeah, the liability management ratio, if you're below two, which is, is you know, two assets, every one liability, um, as you slide down into, into receivership, um, yeah, the, the environmental liabilities are so high that there's no ability for you to recoup anything. Right now, there's 238 companies with $5 billion of environmental liabilities and below below the two ratio of, of assets. So effectively, you have 238 zombies wandering around on the landscape, not paying people their surface rates and not paying taxes. 
I, we understand that when a company goes bankrupt, you know, get in line. And the, react, the, the reality is, is that with the Redwater decision, environmental liabilities come first. Mm-hmm. And by the time the environmental liabilities are paid for, there's nothing left at the end of the day. So we're frustrated that the AER is being a cheerleader to a lot of these companies. You know, you heard from the premier that this industry has got about 10 years, of peak years. Um, you need to fix it now because 10 years from now, we're in a lot of trouble if this continues. Well, no kidding. It's part of what you're talking about. The problem here is that, you know, we're, we're, we're ignoring the problem and then these companies go bankrupt. So we get to a point where that's not recoupable. But if we were acting sooner or I guess with more purpose, you could deal with this situation before it gets to that point. Exactly. It's just a loophole. Like I said, a very few uh, number of companies do it. But you know what? When you leave a loophole that you know is there, just fill the loophole. Um, this becomes a, this becomes an untenable problem uh, three or four years down the road when these taxes are paid. We still actually have to put them on the books, so I have to eat them year over year. My municipality's written off six million dollars, the, the county of Pinoca. Right now, I've got two point three million on the books. The company was operating up to a few months ago, and the stark reality is this should have been stopped five years ago. So again, we just want to hold the the, the AER accountable. Uh, and my members have been pretty patient on this. And they just told me, Paul, unleash the hounds. Enough is enough. So in terms of the province giving more powers to municipality, have we maxed out that side? Does this all now fall on the AER? I think it all falls on the AER. They have all the finance numbers in front of them. You have to have a declaration of a gas facility. So the one that has all the information is the AER. Um, we provide the AER of the list of companies that are, that are um, faulting on, on taxes. We, we picked up the surface race piece because the issue is is that, you know, can you imagine that you owned a rental property and someone just decided to not pay rent for three years yeah. and you had no recourse? So you went before the land tenant board and they just said, not my problem, because that's what we hear from the AR, is that it's not their problem. And constantly over the years we've been hearing, hey, everyone should pay their taxes. But, you know, it's a little more complex than that. <laughs> well, I know how complex it is, and someone just has to have the courage to lead and regulate. That's all we've ever asked for. Well, much more at rmalberta.com. Paul, we'll see where this all goes from here, but thanks for joining us this afternoon. Appreciate it. Appreciate the time to tell my story. All the best. Paul McLaughlin, uh, Riva Pinocchio County, President of Rural Municipalities of Alberta. Uh, So their frustration that even though the province gave municipalities new tools to address this, ultimately they say the problems with the, the Alberta Energy Regulator. I went to judo with my boys. It was a very good judo lesson because uh, nobody was there because of the storm. So we had to teach it all to ourselves. And I went home, discussed with the boys, put them to bed, walked till midnight in the storm. Interesting, eh? And then I went home and took a sauna for an hour and a half. It was all clear. I was going to leave, but I went to sleep. Just in case I'd changed my mind overnight, and I didn't. I woke up. It was great. I use the old cliche, this is the first day of the rest of my life. Well, it was 40 years ago, February 29th, 1984, an end of an era in Canadian politics. Pierre Elliott Trudeau announcing his resignation. Uh, as prime minister after his famous walk in the snow. Now, it wasn't the first time he resigned, um, but it was uh, the one that stuck. Now, it's interesting to look at the parallels uh, between that prime minister and the prime minister we have today, which is one of the boys that uh, Pierre was referring to in that clip 40 years ago. Uh, Like his father, Justin Trudeau has been the prime minister for quite some time. 
and is facing a lot of questions about his future, uh, whether he intends to, to run in the next election. Pierre read the writing on the wall. It was time for him to go. So what do we make uh, of uh, the decision that his son will make at some point? Well, joining us for more on uh, the the historical significance uh, of that moment 40 years ago and also some of the parallels uh, to the situation today. We're pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Raymond Blake, who's a professor of history and associate dean of research and graduate studies at the University of Regina. Had a great piece on all of this. You can find it at theconversation.com. Professor Blake, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for inviting me was an interesting backdrop. We hear about the famous walk in the snow that Pierre Trudeau took 40 years ago, but uh, there was a lot of snow. Ottawa was a ghost town. There was this horrible blizzard, and uh, then once this big news dropped, I guess uh, everybody was scrambling, weren't they? Indeed. And, and you know, not only on that day, but the, the phrase itself, a walk in the snow, has, has become sort of a part of the Canadian lexicon. Yeah. It, it's something we, we talk about today as if, Oh, of course, everybody knows what you what you mean by walking the snow. You're going to make an important you're going to make an important decision. Yeah. Well, and I mean that's that's how he did it. As as cold and blustery as it was, Pierre Trudeau says he, he uh, took a walk with his sons, took a walk by himself. Uh, but obviously, I mean, it was it was a consequential decision. He had he had resigned once before, of course, uh, and came back. But what was the situation he was facing in 1984 after all of those years in power? Well, well, first of all, he's facing, the, as all of us do, the question of age. He's approaching 65. He's been in Canadian politics and Quebec politics now for a very long time. Came to Ottawa in mid-1960s, became Liberal leader, became Prime Minister in 1968. So when you look to 1984, it's 15 years. And he had, of course, many scars uh, during the battles with the provinces and the uh, and the opposition, of course, and he had lost, as you pointed out, in 1979, came back in 1980. But when he came back in 1980, he made it very clear, and he talked about it not a lot, but he, but enough that Canadians knew that this was his last time as Prime Minister. He was going to run again in the next election. And in fact, a week or so before he made that walk in the snow, he had talked to the Liberal Party president, Iona Cabanoa, and and talked about sort of leaving and when they would sort of, uh, not when they would, would the date be, but to let her know, yeah, that this is this is coming. But the announcement, you know, a day that comes around every four years, ties in very much to the way that Pierre Trudeau approached politics. And he always wanted to be a non-politician, although he was a very successful politician. And uh, But it, it adds to the mystique. You know, it'll be another four years before they can talk about his resignation. It comes around, as you said, every four years. Right. And I mean, you know, it was an interesting moment for the Liberal Party. And uh, we, we know what happened in the subsequent election with uh, John Turner at the helm. Um, and, and maybe that's inevitable, whether it was Pierre Trudeau or John Turner or somebody else. Uh, we've seen a pattern of Canadians, you know, deciding for change after a decade or, or so, roughly speaking. So uh, did Pierre Trudeau, to some extent, maybe see that writing on the wall, do you think? Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the uh, failures of so many political leaders in Canada and elsewhere too, I suspect, is they don't know when to leave. 
And generally, when the polls uh, were down, as they were in 1984, Mr. Trudeau was somewhere, you know, slightly about 20% in the polls. Even the party insiders were saying it's time for him to go for the good of the country, and especially for the good of the Liberal Party. In 1980, he didn't win a seat west of Manitoba. Uh, The numbers in Quebec were not favorable to the Liberal Party. And, of course, Quebec had been voting Liberal for generations. Mm -hmm. And we saw in 1984, you know, it really did reject the Liberal Party. That was Mr. Trudeau's party, although John Turner was then the leader of the party. So he knew that he probably couldn't win another election. What do you see as the parallels to the uh, situation his son now faces today? Obviously, Justin Trudeau is much younger uh, than his father was at the time. But beyond that, there there do seem to be a lot of parallels. Well, you know, they're, they're, every political leader, after being around for you know seven or eight, ten, almost a, de- a decade, uh, you know, they wear out their welcome. And, and certainly the political situation facing Mr. Trudeau is very similar to the one that faced his father, you know, 40 years ago. The Liberals are down in the polls. Uh, they, he is now dealing with what appears to be two Canadians, and his polls are correct, a, a, an opposition leader that people are now beginning to think would make a reasonably good prime minister. Uh, people within the Liberal Party are beginning to whisper, and some of them speak openly, about the time for Mr. Trudeau to go. There are people in the wings apparently waiting to launch their campaign to replace him as leader within the party. And and so the the parallels are are striking, not just because it's a father and son, but because after eight years in office, most politicians realize that the opposition is gaining strength and if there's a, a viable leader, it just makes their time more difficult. Mr. Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, was lucky in a way that, you know, there were no great leaders. Uh, Robert Stanfield, everyone talked about this prime minister Canada never had. Mm-hmm. But it was a rather, you know, with all due respect to, to Mr. Stanfield, a very dull character in the 1980s when, you know, the world and probably and certainly Canada wanted a charismatic leader like Mr. Pierre Trudeau. Well, much like today, I mean, you know, it's hard to see who might be the successor to to the uh, younger Trudeau. And maybe again, that that uh, situation of a politician not knowing when to leave uh, doesn't sound like Justin's inclined to take a walk in the snow anytime soon. In fact, suggests that he might even contest the next election. So maybe breaking with uh, his father in that sense. Well, and probably, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But if he stays on as liberal leader, he may be like his father and return as Prime Minister yet again. It's happened with Mr. Trudeau. It happened with Mr. Mackenzie King in in the 1930s. So it's not unknown, and particularly given Trudeau's age, he he could stick around, probably not, but uh, he he could if he loses. If he runs, loses, he may come back. But I can't imagine being Prime Minister and then going to the opposition benches would have much attraction for him. I imagine not. Well, we'll see how that all plays out. In the meantime, a look back at uh, what happened 40 years ago. Your piece that's up at theconversation.com. Professor Blake, thanks so much for your insight on all this. Really appreciate you joining us here. Great to speak to you.
There you go. Raymond Blake, professor of history, University of Regina. So some thoughts on uh, this day 40 years ago, the walk in the snow and Pierre's resignation and uh, the situation uh, that uh, the younger Trudeau now finds himself today uh, here on this uh, leap day in 2024 as prime minister. It's uh, uh, 441 in Ottawa. No words uh, that the Prime Minister has taken a walk in the snow today. I'm not even sure the weather situation uh, in Ottawa. Uh, no, I don't think Justin Trudeau's resigning anytime soon. Uh, I, I was once of the belief that he wouldn't be the leader going into the next election. I'm, I'm no longer convinced of that. I, I actually think he will. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.